Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. How did our culture, our politics, and our economy get where we are today? Just how bad is it? And is it fixable? By comparison, 50 years ago, the country was truly coming apart. War, assassination, and riots undermined the very fabric of America. All of this came just 20 years after the greatest generation won the war and five years after Camelot. Out of this cauldron came of age a new generation, as Kennedy said, born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, and proud of its ancient heritage. So what happened, and how does it explain today's dysfunction, chaos, distrust, and tribalism? In fact, the tailspin we seem to be in finds its origin and in turn maybe its solutions in the molten core of the 1960s and all that has happened since. To try and find the threads and pull all of them together, I am joined by my guest, Stephen Brill. A graduate of Yale and Yale Law School, Brill has written for The New Yorker, Time, The New York Times Magazine, and numerous other publications. He founded Court TV in the American Lawyer Magazine. He teaches journalism at Yale, where he founded the Yale Journalism Initiative and recently launched NewsGuard, which rates the credibility of online news and information websites. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Brill to the program to talk about his new book, Tailspin, The People and the Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Stephen Brill, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be with you. It's great to have you here. One of the the principal core argument that you start off with is that uh, out of the tumult of the 60s, essentially, we threw out the old elite, the old guard, and we created meritocracy. The problem is that that meritocracy created a new elite and one that we're dealing with today. Talk a little about that. Well, that's correct. And, uh, you know, first off, a confession, I'm, I'm a prime beneficiary of that meritocracy. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in, uh, um, in Queens, New York, and got a scholarship to Yale and Yale Law School and uh, became a part of that uh, of uh, the generation that uh, we're talking about. I didn't uh, go to a law firm like most of my classmates, um, but instead I started a magazine about lawyers, which basically celebrated how how rich and powerful uh, uh, the meritocrats who were joining these law firms uh, were becoming. Um, the reason we sort of fell off course is that uh, we got too much of a good thing. And what I mean by that is that um, as the meritocrats you know, came out of these elite institutions, which were suddenly open to them, and went into elite law firms and investment banks and consultancies and corporations, uh, you know, they were driven, high-achieving people who were really smart, and therefore they were able to advance the interests of the elite institutions they were working for and their clients, the big corporations, in ways that um, had never been dreamed up before. Uh, the lawyers invented corporate takeover fights and leveraged buyouts. The bankers invented uh, derivatives, um, which sounded like a good thing because it enabled the pool of money available for mortgages to expand, but they kept going and kept inventing you know, crazier kinds of derivatives and more complicated kinds, and the result was uh, the crash of 2008. Uh, meantime, the lawyers engineered uh, legal strategies that kept the people, uh, the CEOs, responsible for the crash 
from uh, having any kind of personal responsibility for what they did. So the conclusion I come to is that a series of core positive American values, uh, meritocracy, um, the First Amendment, which enabled the monetization of politics by giving people and corporations a First Amendment right to to dominate the political process with their money, uh, due process, which enabled the squadrons of lawyers who uh, were being hired by the law firms to you know to swarm a regulatory process uh, so that an OSHA regulation that might have been 10 pages long, in fact, was 10 pages long in 1974, a regulation written in 2017 was 600 pages long and way too complicated and was able to be contested paragraph by paragraph. So uh, we sort of gorged on all the things that make America great and in various ways, many of them unintended, they turned against us. Um, and that's really the story of the tailspin. But the good news is that I uh, discovered in the course of my reporting lots of groups of equally driven, equally high-achieving people who have grown so disgusted with what's been going on in different spheres, whether it's uh, anti-poverty or uh, campaign finance or bipartisan policymaking, that they have formed groups that are working and I think are poised to lead the charge once enough Americans become so disgusted that they demand real change, which I think is going to happen. Is before, before we talk about the change and where we are today, isn't one of the key differences between this elite that grew out of the meritocracy and, and the kind of elite that was there before that was overthrown, those in the, in the proverbial white shoe law firms at the time, Mm-hmm. is that, that those elites saw a responsibility and an obligation of high achievement. That was never carried forward to this new elite. Well, that's true. Some of them did. On the other hand, they didn't you know, feel much of an obligation you know, to hire minorities or women or to... Um, they felt the sort of relaxed obligation of being in a club that wasn't terribly competitive. They didn't have a lot to worry about economically. They weren't you know, fighting with each other and competing with each other. So yeah, they could take more time out to work on a pro bono case and things like that. Um, the new core of people at, at law firms or banks uh, you know, measured things uh, that, you know, based on how much money they were making. And the new core of people in corporate boardrooms who were enabled uh, by the lawyers and bankers, you know, measured, um, you know, everything in, in how the stock was doing quarter to quarter, not on whether the corporation was investing for the long term or worrying about, you know, building assets. The, the, you know, all the financial games that were played basically turned the country into an economy, you know, where financial services, uh, which used to be uh, the enablers of building you know, real companies that made real things, uh, financial services and legal services became the thing. And uh, that became a much bigger segment of our economy than the manufacturing segment or the services segment. 
wasn't all of this clear to a certain degree in the 80s? Isn't the whole idea and wasn't the whole Reagan notion in the 80s of trickle-down economics a way to try and address what was becoming clear were the grievances and, and the problems that were inherent in the development of this new elite? That's true, except that... Uh, the, you know, the notion of trickle-down economics has, has, has accelerated since Reagan. And in fact, you know, when the Democrats controlled, um, you know, the White House and uh, the Congress, uh, Obama was not able to change that very much. You know, the tax code, uh, you know, wasn't really improved. There were some little you know, some little efforts to tax, you know, the wealthy a little bit more through the Affordable Care Act taxes, but um, things really didn't change. Um, The country has a history of, you know, the pendulum swinging back and forth. So the notion was after Nixon left office, you know, and you had the Watergate, uh, you know, revolt and the Democrats, you know, swept into the White House in the person of Jimmy Carter and controlled Congress, that the pendulum would swing back a little bit, but to take the most obvious example, Carter proposed a tax reform plan that would um, eliminate the or or weaken the advantage that capital gains taxes have, you know, the lower rate at which capital gains are taxed, and would tax the wealthy more and tax the non-wealthy less. By the time it got through Congress, the capital gains preference had been expanded, uh, taxes on the wealthy had been lowered and taxes on the non-wealthy in the form of an increased social security tax on wages had been expanded. So a democratic controlled Congress reversed everything Carter tried to do. Uh, by the same token, uh, Carter attempted to uh, pass uh, reforms of the labor laws because uh, you know, you may remember the famous, uh, you know, J.P. Stevens sure. fight, which became the movie Norma Ray. Um, you know, the big corporations, especially in the South, were fighting unions tooth and nail, and they had a legal strategy that basically said, if we just defy the National Labor Relations Board and defy the courts, they're going to fine us a little bit, and then they'll fine us a little more. But whatever the fines are, it's not going to be nearly as much. It may be 1% of the money we save by fighting off the unions for as long as we can. So what happened when Carter took office is he tried to change the law to you know stiffen the penalties for violating the law, for example, and he didn't get that through. It didn't happen. And as a result of that, uh, unions in the private sector today are like 5% of the private sector workers when in you know the 1960s it was uh, closer to 40%. There basically are no private sector union workers anymore. How much of, of all that you talk about in Tailspin is as a result of economic forces that, that began in this period in the 60s and carried on through the 70s and 80s and, and, and all the things that we're talking about that really once started were, were unstoppable to a certain extent. And, and in many ways, some of the things that we're dealing with today in this Tailspin are, are almost inevitable as a result of so many decisions that were layered on top of each other through this economic decisions layered on top of each other through this period. That's all exactly true, but uh, there are always economic uh, forces uh, swirling around. I, I'm guessing what you're referring to are, are 
the economic forces related to technology and the automation of a lot of jobs. Yeah, it's also you know, globalization, and, which which really didn't start with. I mean, and, and you hit the nail on the head. It didn't start with manufacturing necessarily, but really goes back to the '70s. And you know, Walter Riston talking about the free flow of money around the world, and that's really that's the beginning true. of the the globalized era. That's exactly true, but. That's where the obligation of government to work for the common good and think of the common good comes in, and that's where the government failed from the Kennedy administration right up through today. Um, in, in 1971, a young aide to Richard Nixon, Pete Peterson, who later went on to found uh, you know, Blackstone, the giant private equity fund, uh, Pete Peterson warned Nixon and his cabinet in a memo that the, the coming forces of automation and globalization were going to be so strong that the country had to embark now, 1971, on a massive program of job training and retraining and a massive program to improve the public education system or a large swath of the country were going to be victims of globalization and automation and they were going to be left out of the economy. And according to Peterson, who I interviewed uh, last year just before he passed away, uh, Nixon and the cabinet basically paid him lip service. They did nothing. They ignored it. And uh, every other administration paid lip service to it. Obama tried to revamp job training programs, but didn't do it. Now, the fact is those programs can work. In this book, I discovered a guy who has started a nonprofit program working out of a converted zipper factory in Queens, New York, this guy's a Vietnam vet, a decorated vet, and a Harvard grad. And he has a job training program where he takes sales clerks and messengers and, and bouncers at bars and brings them into this program where they learn to code software. And 11 months later, he is placing them in jobs averaging $85,000 a year. You can do that. It is not impossible. Those economic forces you're describing are not, you know, immutable. Uh, you just have to adapt to them and change. There is a, you know, a shortage of software coders in this country that, you know, depending on, you know, which, uh, which numbers you read, is either a half a million or, or two million uh, people who, if they were trained, could do these jobs. And you don't necessarily have to go to college to do it. You can be trained to do it. So that is an obligation that every other government around the world assumes is the same obligation as K-12 to education. The economy changes. As you put it, economic forces are always you know, changing and swirling around. And every other government says, well, to help our people, what we need to do is give them the job training and the apprenticeship programs that will allow them to get up off their to get up off the floor and get back into the economy because it's better for the economy and it's certainly better for them and it's better for the community. Uh, President Trump has cut back severely the job training programs that we have which are, you know, which aren't enough anyway, which are terrible. And he's cut them back. And as you point out, th th this was all foreseen. I mean, trade adjustment assistance, which is essentially what you're talking about, was built into right. the idea of globalization, but ignored. Exactly. The program was ignored. There, there, there is a trade adjustment assistance program. It's in the Department of Labor. You can even, you can even find their, 
they're very uh, you know cheerful website if you go to the <laughs> department of labor it just doesn't work it's bureaucratic it says well the first thing you have to do is get a high school degree before you can enter our program people have been put out of work they can't go back to high school they, there are all these requirements and it's basically a way to give money to community colleges to do nothing and i went back and i tracked this down i obsessively tracked this down in in the 50 years that program has existed, there have been exactly two stories in any substantive print publication and none in any broadcast media about how that program is working. Why? Because the people who are the victims of the program failing are not the kinds of people uh, that people in the media tend to bump into all the time. And finally, Stephen, what are the parallels that you see between what went on as a result of, of the 60s that created this push for meritocracy, that created this new elite that pushed out the old elite, to what we're seeing today where there is all this anger and frustration and, and tribalism and all those bad things we see creating this tailspin today, trying to push out this existing merit, meritocracy elite? Well, uh, I think the anger, you know, the anger is understandable. Um, if, if you're on Social Security and you didn't get your check today and you call the Social Security Administration office and you're kept on hold for 12 hours, uh, you're going to be angry. If you're spending, you know, hundreds of dollars a year to fix, uh, you know, potholes because we haven't, uh, you know, kept our roads up, you're going to be angry. If you know that your vote doesn't count because the people with money, you know, control everything in Washington, uh, you're going to be angry. So what happened in 2016, I think, and I say at the end of the book, is that the, the frustrated people in this country, or at least 46% of them, um, basically revolted against the meritocracy because Hillary Clinton is the epitome of the meritocracy. You know, Yale Law School educated, always prepared, always works hard. Uh, her family was not wealthy. Uh, she always does her homework. Um, uh, versus Donald Trump, who's the opposite. Born with money, never, never does his homework, you know, shoots from the hip, six times bankrupted, um, you know, prides himself on, on not being prepared and on winging it. And basically, when he promised all those frustrated Americans that the coal miners are going to get their jobs back and there's going to, you know, immediately going to be a fabulous infrastructure program and everybody's going to have better health care and it's going to cost less and everybody's taxes are going to go down, but, uh, you know, but national defense spending is going to go up and we're going to spend more on public schools and we're going to rebuild all the cities. Remember he promised that we're going to rebuild all the cities, going to do all this stuff. Uh, 46% of the country said, you know what, you know, things are so bad. Let's just let them try. What the hell? And my theory of 2020 is that the coal miners are going to realize, you know, I actually didn't get my job back. And people are going to realize, you know, my health care, my access to health care has actually uh, gotten worse. And my ability, you know, although I have a job, my ability to you know, survive as a middle-class uh, family has actually gone down because uh, uh, my job is, you know, either an outsourced job or a part-time job, and it doesn't have, you know, any of the benefits that jobs used to have. I think that if the right political leaders in one party or the other come forward 
and unite the poor with the middle class and promise, you know, make promises that they can keep and explain to the middle class that, that immigrants and the poor are not what's keeping them down. What's keeping them down is that this country has become a country divided between the protected who have moats uh, that protect them and the vast majority of us who are unprotected, that that will really bring real change in this country. Stephen Brill, the book is Tailspin, the people and forces behind America's 50-year fall and those fighting to reverse it. Stephen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you.